This is Jeff Schaefer, director of the Hale Institute. I am pleased to announce the launch of the Hale Institute podcast. Principally handling the interviews and other discussion content on the podcast will be Tymon Klein, Hale's director of scholarly initiatives. And in this first installment, Tymon will be talking with Professor Hadley Arcus. Professor Arcus is the founder and director of the James Wilson Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based center for the study of the jurisprudence of natural law. He has been a member of the Amherst College faculty since 1966, and since 1987, the Edward Ney Professor of Jurisprudence there, assuming emeritus status in 2016. Professor Arcus is a prolific author, penning essays and articles published in both academic journals and popular outlets, and has written multiple books, some of which will be discussed in today's interview. We hope and trust that you will benefit from the content on this and upcoming episodes of the podcast, and would be glad to hear from you along the way. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome to the uh, Hale Institute podcast. Uh, We have the great privilege today of having Hadley Arcus with us on uh, to talk about his new book, Mere Natural Law, Originalism, and the Anchoring Truths. It's out, uh, I think, in May of this year is when it came out. So we're finally getting around to talk about it. Um, and uh, everyone's been, been talking about it. Um, but of course, um, Professor Arcus, you have uh, many other books um, that I want to mention to people before uh, we get to the newest installment. And my favorite book even though I've read this one, and I do love it, still remains beyond the Constitution. Um, ah. Probably for, it's probably one of those books that got to me at exactly the right time, you know, when I was in law school and, and helped me make sense of many things. So it's it's oh, a bit sentimental. That's nice to hear. Nice but, to hear. Uh, but that one still remains my favorite. I've, I've reread sections of it many times. Uh, so I'd commend that one to everyone as well. But th- this one, I think, um, the, the newest book, Mere Natural Law, will have um, a lot more use to um, even ordinary people that are outside of uh, legal academia um, sure. or, or academia generally. I think it's very accessible and it's it's desperately needed. Um, so what was the, um, with this particular book, you know, what was the, the impetus for this one? And um, and then we can, you know, kind of get into its its general thesis of what you're wanting to communicate to to people about uh, what you call the mere natural law, obviously borrowing in some sense from C.S. Lewis's title. Um, but tell us why why this one, because you've written so many other books. And uh, is this a culmination of other work or? Well, why it's, it? Yeah, it's trying to move it another level to, to, to reach as you see, the, the, the ordinary folk, because I think the, the, the natural law finds its grounds in those laws of reason that are accessible to or, uh, quite a sudden we, we, the divine law we know through revelation the, the natural law we know through that reasoning accessible to human beings as human beings. You know, I recall that moment in the book where a president of Amherst College said, Hadley has a theory of mm-hmm. natural law. And I said, well, what do you say that? You suggest you're standing back in wholesome detachment, watching theories whiz past, and somehow you're able to form judgments about the strands of those theories that are plausible or implausible, true or false. And I said, take me back to that ground on which you make these judgments about the things you reliably know, and you're back at what some of us take to be the ground of the natural law. So in that vein, my dear dear late friend, Daniel Robinson, who wrote 18 books, an important figure of the neurosciences, wrote on Aristotle's psychology. And, and Dan said he wanted his tombstone. He died without a theory. And when, when he said that, he was really appealing to Thomas Reed, the great 
uh, exponent of common sense, common sense reasoning at the end of the 18th century, uh, Thomas Reed, who would bring us back to those precepts of common sense, that the ordinary man not only has, has to know before he starts trafficking in theories, but has to know just in getting on with the business of life. And so, you know, uh, as you've heard me say, before the average man with, with banter about David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knew his own act of powers to cause his own acts to happen. And why don't I say that's where we have to engage the natural law, through those things that are accessible to every ordinary man, those anchoring truths that anyone would be able to grasp as a rational creature. And uh, you, you, you remember I, I was citing Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 31 saying, in disquisitions of every time, there's certain primary truths or first principles upon which all subsequent reasonings must depend. They contain an internal evidence which, which antecedent to all reflection or combination command the ascent of the mind. Though like the maxims of geometry, two lines cannot enclose a space, two things equal to a third are equal to another. And if like nature are those maxims of ethics and politics, that there must, they cannot be in effect without a cause, the means must be proportionate to the end. And there ought to be no limitation placed on a power destined to affect a purpose, which is itself capable of limitation. Yeah, but now, the, the, what is it that ordinary people can grasp? I say, well, one thing ordinary guess is that anchoring proposition that acts in the laws of reason. Two contradictory propositions, both cannot be true. The ordinary man may have not have heard of the law of contradiction, but he's able to tell, he, he's alert to when people are giving him conflicting stories. And the other critical point, the one that, that, that Kant and, and even Aquinas took, as the very first, really the first principle of all moral and legal reasoning, is the one that the ordinary man would understand once if you say, if you ask him, if, if you're told that Jones, accused of a serious crime, was undergoing surgery at the time the crime was committed, the ordinary man would back into what Kant and Reed took as that first principle of all judgment, that it makes no sense that the moral world begins with a world of freedom, where people have the power to make their own acts happen. That it makes no sense to cast judgments of praise or blame or hold people blameworthy for acts they were powerless to affect. That's something that the ordinary man grasps readily, even if he doesn't have any labels to put on it. And from that very simple proposition, we could extract many others. Now, my point here is that uh, we can build up, we can draw many implications running through our law from these kinds of axioms, which as Hamilton and Wilson, James Wilson understood, are matters that are true of necessity, which is we have to take them for granted. And I think if, if, if you follow James Wilson, say one of our premier founders in Hamilton, and if you understand that we can draw the lines of our jurisprudence, it's the key lines to propositions of this kind that are true of necessity, that makes a profound difference because it is not merely a theory that two contradictory propositions both cannot be true. No more is it a mere theory that it's wrong to hold people blameworthy for acts they performed before they were born or acts they could not possibly have affected. And if that's the case, then you understand that a system of law built upon these kinds of axioms cannot give us a mere theory of natural law, it must give us the real thing, 
and in the pitches, um, being successful to the ordinary man. You picked up in, in your comments what the, why I was making this allusion to C.S. Lewis. He's, he's noticing in the conversations and arguments among, among children the rudiments of moral reasoning. They're not arguing really over likes and dislikes, they're arguing over fairness, more questions. Who is right and who's wrong? They give they bring forth rules. Oh, we did that last week, it's our time to do it this week. Uh, they bring forth rules, they try to counter the argument. And of course, the, the conversation makes no sense unless they're all assuming that they're right answers that I expect everybody else around here to recognize when they hear them. And and so often you find that these same kinds of things are, are accessible to, to children. I use in the book an example where I thought the average seven-year-old understood uh, more than Justice Holmes. Now imagine mm-hmm. the case in which the, you may recall, the seven-year-old is at her school is, is beat upon by, by roughnecks. They stay, they steal his lunch money. Now the question, what do you think are the two most likely responses on the part of the seven-year-old? One, that he was wrong. He was set upon wrongly, unjustly. Mm-hmm. Or two, that, well, no, it must, he, they must have been right. I mean, they, they succeeded. Now, I don't know anyone who takes that second one as a serious proposition. Hmm. The first one is the most natural. But if that's the case, what you're saying is the, the child grasped, the youngster would grasp what Rousseau's critical point, that the mere success of some people in seizing and holding power over others cannot possibly establish a justification for that rule, as though power establishes its own justification. Now, if you ask Justice Holmes, on what ground does the majority rule the minority? Holmes's answer, because of the brute fact that the majority can overpower the minority. In other words, it's the right rule of the strong, or might makes right, with his natural reasoning unaffected by theories, unaffected by all the theories that a Justice Holmes could, could, could deal with, the seven-year-old would grasp something elementary that happens to be true and happens should, could, be, could be recognized as one of the uh, grounding premises in our book. So that was the pitch of the book, to take Wilson seriously. I, mean, I quoted uh, that line from Tom Stoppard in a play of his, and he has one, one professor saying he... he, he um, he, he tries out some of these problems on his children, his, his child, son. Who's he? How old is he? Eight years old. But he gets it. He gets it. And some, so I want to just point out that there's nothing here. I actually, you know, I cite that line of, from Thomas Jefferson. That you can give the same problem, more problem, to a professor and a plowman, a man who runs a plow. And the plowman is as apt to get it right because he's not going to be distracted by artificial rules. Call them theories. I mean, you see, some, you see what's going on in the streets of the kind of the protests over over Israel and the Palestinians. You see, some people have been sort of drummed out of their natural moral sense by uh, theories that have just widely distracted their judgments or even corroded their capacity to reason about things in a natural, rudimentary, moral way. I've, I've unloaded a lot on you. No, 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 no. That's good. Um, <laughs> Well, I do think, so to take one direction, which is kind of where you were ending, uh, pointing out something that's probably increasingly obvious to most people, um, yeah. and, and the, the you set up this dichotomy or this comparison between, you know, a child who's yet to be corrupted by theories <laughs> and someone who's made it their, um, 
their life's mission and their uh, the, it roped their status and, and uh, livelihood up in um, either practicing or you know playing around with theories or creating new theories. Even better, you know, you make more, uh, get more status and money if you have new theories. You know, but the, so those would be the two sort of poles. Um, but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of room in between those two poles, and the the courts, especially lawyers. All these things have, have, over the past, you know, century, we could say, dutifully um, un, unlearned the the more basic <laughs> truths. And uh, you know, well, have, well put, well put. Okay. Do you have a, um, you know, a, a a brief sort of causal narrative of that of how that happened? Because I think um, you even see this with with uh, people we would consider friends or good, uh, quote unquote, conservative, you know, lawyers know. still have no time for. Um, this kind of conversation or, or thought, and it certainly doesn't come into their jurisprudence or legal opinions. That's so, you know, how has all this happened, I guess, would be the, the question. I know some of my best friends have been positivists. Right, right. But, but you know, okay, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. No, I, 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 yeah. Lino Scalia, my beloved Lino Scalia, I'd say, uh, for man, he sometimes gives us handsome examples of natural law on the part of a man who persists who persists in saying up and down that it can't be done. Yes. But he, keeps, he keeps falling back into it. Anyway, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't no, no, to... that's right. With I always think Scalia, you know, sometimes the mask slipped and uh, the real Scalia that he was at home, you know, accidentally came into his opinions. <laughs> but, the, um, but you know, so what is what is your understanding of, of um, you know, how this has happened, um, which I think is important to think about so that we can figure out uh, maybe in some sense how to get it back in into an actionable state uh, with, you know, and it's, and it's happening to some extent in large part because of uh, your work and others, but it's, um, you know, it's a long slog, I guess you'd say. So how, how did we go from James Wilson, Blackstone, Pufendorf, Berlamanki and the founders, what, all, all recognizing these things and using them, you know, very, very standard uh, to, to use these sorts of arguments um, in, you know, in real life, not just, not just in, um, you know, polite conversation. And then by the by the time you get to Holmes, who you mentioned, has less sense than the eight, eight year old. How does that um, you know, how does that happen? Well, it all began with the rise of this positivism in, in, the, in the end of the nineteenth century in, in the study of the law. And Holmes's uh, um, notable claim and hope to put purge moral words, purge all moral words from the law altogether, and give us a pure law. Now it's been in the works for a long time. I remember years ago, uh, being in the class, of course, with with. Leo Strauss at the University of Chicago. And it's quite interesting to see those people gather that first class I had with Mr. Strauss. And it was quite an interesting assortment of, of retired gray-haired people from the military, Catholic, Catholic seminarians, and young, aggressive Jewish kids from Chicago. And we say, what do these people have in common? <laughs> and, and it was, it was you could see, but you see it in the first moments. They're, they're standing against the currents of relativism. That there was, they're part of Strauss's project, appealing at once to the classics and Greek philosophy and the Bible, mm-hmm. drawing upon on the Athens and Jerusalem to stand against those currents of relativism. They were corroding even the schools of philosophy. And of course, you know, that's, that's Strauss's great line. He said, it's, it's, it's how did it go about, it won't be the last time that a country we have now affected, affected by German philosophy and historicism <laughs> and relativism. He said, it won't be the first time that a country defeated on the battlefield has the, imposes 
the yoke of its thought upon the victor. That yeah. we, we, we become we fall, falling into historicism. And yeah. of course, it's got worse and worse since then. And I've been in the one of the reasons I taught my course on political obligations or first things was to sort of like offer a counter to with the currents that were running through the college. But then it all became worse, of course, with deconstruction, uh, gender studies, and everything where the critical point was to not only detach uh, our understanding sexuality from nature, but do it by a radical detachment from claims of truth altogether. So it, it's it's been in the works for a long time, but the thing was really shocking that, that I just have never seen anything in my lifetime comparable to what we've seen over the last few weeks with people rushing into the streets telling us that, you know, the, the kidnapping of grandmothers, beheading of children, Hmm. It's not. It's not. Yes, it may be bad, but it's it's altogether just justified by what? Now, the normally you think that normally ordinary people would see something like that, recoil from the horror, and just raise the question: My God, what is it you think justifies that? What is the nature of the wrong that you think finds its end remedy or vindication in beheading babies? Hmm. Have, have the Israelis been? Launching uh, commando strikes, just looking looking for civilians to assault. Oh, how Palestinians being? How are the Palestinians being occupied? Being ruled without their consent? Well, they're being ruled without their consent with Gaza or, or the uh, Palestinian Authority. But they're not after, if they wanted a government by consent, they would overthrow um, these two authorities. My point is, the people making this point have, are not showing even the slightest reflection about contesting the grounds what what they could possibly be thinking about the grounds of justice what could justify this thing and it's clear that they have never confronted it's good to me that they probably haven't con confronted anyone in college on their social set that would raise a challenge to their views to sort of challenge them just explain what you're talking about here something has gone radically missing it's it's getting more and more absent in the colleges uh, these days. Obviously, it's, that conversation isn't taking place. I guess one reason I was different as Amherst was that I would stand against the currents that were there and sort of I go back to Lincoln, Aristotle, and the Bible, and we put something in place and it'd be a challenge, and people would want to be on the side of Lincoln, and that would put them at odds with all the the, the currents of relativism all about them. But that, that that tension has to be offered, and it just isn't being. It's just not being offered these days. And the conditions of the colleges right now, as we know them, except for some rare, some fine gems of places. Hmm. And how did you? I mean, so you you taught at, at Amherst. Um, this is is you know, it's still it's a different world, but it's still fascinating because it's not like um, even in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, everywhere was amenable to this sort of resistance oh, to sure, the currents. Sure, sure. That, that's what made the that's what made the course right. good to do because there's a right. challenge to what was running through the running through the culture and the, the college. Yeah, right. So how did you get away with that? <laughs> um, was it just because people were so hungry for? For that, and did, but didn't know what they were hungry for, and it, when you were you were yeah, there. I, 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 guess, I mean, a number of people saying, you know, I don't know what I've done if I hadn't heard it, hmm. or you know, I had these letters from people 
before I came into the church, from some of my former students, when Ned Desmond, who was stationed in Tokyo from Time Mag Magazine, he wrote me, he said, you know, it was that work we did on natural law in First Things or, that actually brought me back to the church. And that is what, what, what brought them back was the notion that the church was sort of standing as, as, as one place enclave, as a sanctuary for the moral reasoning of the natural law, even as the currents of, of relativism were corroding everything else. So some of my students went into the church before, but before I did uh, with this thing. But what, what kept me, well, at Amherst, I, first of all, what I did seem to um, elicit respect. People knew something was going on in those classes. People wanted to be in them. Or at, 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 um, at Amherst, it was a place where people, is a small school. People talked about the courses at lunch and they called them at dinner. People were doing teaching for me at, at dinner. You know, people, mm. uh, I heard the story that some people would come over to one of my students and say, well, look, you know, the arg you know this argument, right? You know, and they'd be, te they'd be testing it out in the dormitories, testing it out. It, it, was, it was running through. But apart from that, I was just supported by the affection, the affection of respect, and supported also by the prospect that uh, I was also funny. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I could, and I, it, 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 if, if you have some wit, you can, you can throw people off and, um, and make your points in another way that they may find a little, little hard to, to uh, disparage things mm. like that. I think it's so interesting you saying you saying that um you know from there's you've had testimonials from people who took those courses over the years that it, it led them um you know led them to Christianity uh, many of them or they can see the genesis of it of of their conversion there a beginning there and this is something that um I don't know about Catholics but but evangelicals today would um, potentially froth at the idea you know especially if they have a conversionist sort of streak in them a, a certain sort of great awakening piety um, where you need this experience you know this sort of uh, lightning bolt of the holy spirit to get you to you know th then it happens that's how you know but it was a an older um you know older protestant theorists especially ones that would deal with natural law um, in the 17th and 18th century right. would say that you know good law especially the natural law instantiated in a sort of pedagogical way so people can see it um it prepares people for for faith it prepared the it prepares them for accepting the higher truths. And if you can't accept, if a man is unreasonable, he will never accept the things that um, stand above reason, even if they're, they're um, not contradictory to reason. So I just think it's, it's totally natural and it should be um, right. part of the reason okay. we should push uh, these, these things upon people's consciences and minds again, because um, actually it leads them to the ultimate end often. Right. And of course we have the, the, the many, you know, Many evangelicals have been coming around to this, you know, in the page of first things. We've we've seen it for a long time. And of course we have Hooker and Calvin and mm -hmm. and it, it's it's been there for, for a long while. You know, it's what's you know, Calvin uh, Aquinas's line, if God wished me to be be uh governed in all things by faith, he would have given me the gift of reason. That was, was John Paul II's it's faith and reason. No, I was just recalling yeah, that and it bears on this conversation too. Mm -hmm. Um uh, Leo the Thirteenth of eighteen eighty six, a wonderful encyclical on human liberty, of whether their liberty is being directed to the ends that are rightful or wrongful. He mm -hmm. says, "A cow cannot impart a moral purpose to property." 
Uh, only only human beings can import a moral purpose, impart a moral purpose to property. Only human beings are the bearers of these property rights, which is say we're talking about creatures of reason who can reason about the rightful, wrongful ends of things, right? And of course, when you're dealing with creatures, these are people who have access to the laws of reason, people who know that uh, they cannot be and not be at the same time, Um but as you point out in your piece, there's something else at work here, things that don't arise from syllogisms. You know, um, the awareness of a hurt, you're inflicting a hurt. Or Lincoln's line that um, no, no creature made in the graven image was sent into the world to be imbruted, you know, mm-hmm. and made into a nothing. Now, you don't get that out of a syllogism. I think you were suggesting in your own piece, Timo, that this, this comes into it. This is awareness of something else, else some, some, something else at work here. Mm-hmm. Um, the awareness, a, a human sympathy coming into play, an awareness of wrongs, of hurts, along with the, the capacity that the, that the creature of reason can bring in in, in, in deliberating about them. Um, but, you know, it's the... The Russians used to have this uh, this this sense of e- theory of human sentiments at work that you know you, you when you send let somebody go abroad you keep member of the family home as kind of insurance that he'll come back. Hmm. Well, that's true. It works most of the time, but it doesn't work all the time because some people are willing to leave their fam- leave their families there. It tells you a theory of moral sentiments is not enough, but that that hmm. that is at work, and. Um, and it's a matter of well, what is it that we need the, the reasoning of, of a moral creature to, you know, um, in, well, uh, that old line of Chesterton's where he said that animals have no religious sense. When was the last time you heard of a cow giving up grass on Fridays, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, but they have no moral sense either. You know, they, they as Thomas Reed said, they cannot make contracts. They cannot give promises. They cannot plight their veracity. Only one kind of creature is capable of giving a promise, understanding what a commitment it is, and actually be willing to honor that commitment when it no longer coincides with his uh, interests or his inclinations. That's, that, that's, that is the one kind of creature made for this world of law and moral reasoning, the only creatures who can do it. Now, yes. where does it leave us? How do, <laughs> did I take did yes. I take? Did I take? No, no, word? no, that's, that's, that's exactly, that's where I wanted it. Uh, oh, to go. I think um, you you had raised a, a couple things from you know my my uh, humble quibbles with with a uh, part of your book that I'm trying to further the conversation in many ways. Um, what, and one of those that that you're sort of getting at is the um, or or alluding to is you know I raised the idea that uh, you you know at some point and in fact it's a you know a dictate of of the natural law that. Uh, humans then make laws, you know, that, that to apply the, the higher principles to real context and uh, needs of people. And you see, and of course, the great common law system is, is the, uh, as Hooker would say, the, the perfect working out of, of the natural law and reason, um, mm-hmm. because it's through custom and practice and longevity that you prove the reasonableness of things and, and true equity is, is arrived at through the, the judges mediating between conflicts. Um, but, th- but that was my point is, you know, it's, um, really getting back to to why why have we lost a lot of this and and uh, my my point was that um 
you know, a certain context and tradition and culture can shepherd the memory of the um, of these higher truths of the natural law. And they can be um, just like the conscience, they can be seared and forgotten and, and sort of, um, uh, you know, twisted in many ways where, where now the law of contra- non-contradiction, um, you know, takes on a new form where maybe two plus two can equal five. Um, you know, this, these sorts of things, you're in a different world. Maybe a man can be stuck in a woman's body. Um, and so, the, but, but so I'm just saying that the, um, you know, and I drew from Jonathan Edwards and Aquinas both a little bit in, in that oh. where um, Edwards had had some comments. Yeah, so you had a good line, very good line from Edwards. Yeah, I love yeah, that. and miscellaneous wow. of where the the reason has to be trained, just like with any you know other other um, any other art and science, you have to be trained. Use of the reason, it's it's there. You do know the natural law. You do know, um, as Romans would say, you do even know God. Um, but you can. Uh, there are th- there are forces actively working against that, and uh, we have to, you know, train the reason well to use it well. Um, and so that requires, you know, some um, maintenance of of a culture and pedagogy that does that. And that's um, also through good good positive laws uh, lead people to, uh, you know, the principles embedded in them where they're obvious. So th- that was my really my only point is there's a, a to me a cultural and, and civilizational element there that to. Um, maintain the 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 thing that the eight year old knows, so it's not beat out of him by the time he's thirty eight. You know, is is dependent in large part on the uh, the pedagogical aspect of the culture. So, what do you, what do you think of that? Oh, I, th- I think uh, yeah, it's perfect, perfectly right that we we do benefit the fact that these the conventions of the academy have been with us. We've had uh, traditions of uh, of asking people to face some tough questions, reading them through. You know. I hate to use the expression Socratic reasoning, but 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 putting giving them putting an argument on the table, Zong, what's wrong with uh, the argument of Harry Blackman? In uh, mm. yeah, it, there, there are certain traditions. I came to a great place, University of Chicago, where um, it's just it, it's it's just so much in the air of every of everything we do, and the, the danger was carrying the conventions of Chicago into into conversations outside mm. <laughs> places. I never. Once a girl broke broke down and cried in the middle of an argument someplace. Likewise, uh, the whole world isn't the University of Chicago, so <laughs> we, 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 we can't do it. But on the other hand, you realize that we talk. Like, go back to what I just said before about the uh, thirteen. It's we, we we're dealing with creatures of the learning is possible only with creatures of reason in the first place. Uh, we can we can raise. How would you like if somebody did that to you? We could raise the question of. Of turning things on him, but it's it's we have the creatures of reason. One of the points here with Reed and others is those things that people have to know before we start teaching them. You know, the there was a wonderful passage in um, at the at the uh, end of Gibbons versus Ogden, kind of a throwaway line from John Marshall. Where he says he, he apologizes to his readers for spending so much time. Demonstrating what should be in the class of an accident. That is, he assumed that all of his literate readers knew before he could carry out a demonstration, certain intermonstrables had to be in place. As Hamilton said, things that had to be grasped per se nota as true in themselves. Like the law of contradiction, two ca- contradictory propositions cannot be true. We cannot be or not be at the same time. And his point is if, if somebody doesn't grasp that point, we cannot demonstrate it to him in the form of an experiment. It's one of those things that one has to know before one steps into 
into the demonstration. And the same thing with uh, like things like punishing something for something he could not possibly have done. So we assume we're not dealing with entirely tabula rasa. We are dealing with creatures of recent who do have access, as Reed said, to those things that ordinary people can know. Now, as you point another thing, we, we've had here going on in the university a regimen of education that seems to be designed to sort of sort of muffle all that mm-hmm. or block people from the things that that ordinary sense would know. You think we 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 have ample reason to know what is a male and female. It took up some 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 remarkable theories, aided with some ex, extraordinary expense of money to create a whole new uh, body of medical ills called gender dysphoria to bring forth a bunch of supposedly credentialed professionals to tell you they know where they find it and also have some exotic means, surgical and cosmetic, in dealing with it. It's taken some serious effort in order to, uh, uh, to divert people from the things that they are, are capable of knowing. It, that, that's, 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 yeah. that's, quite, that's quite true to me. Yes, and, and uh, that's I think I said in the piece at the end. The um, you know, it's kind of this. Uh, if if people don't don't actually know it, then there's no there's no hope in trying to teach them anything um, about its application anyway. So you do have to begin with the assumption uh, that that you are that they um, they're they're moral and knowing creatures that um, you know use reason to direct their action. And um, a reasonable creature should only be governed by law. God governs us by law, and we govern each other by laws. And so it. Um, you know, if you don't begin with that premise, then it's all up for grabs anyway, and there's no hope. So that's why I commend you for preaching, you know, the natural law in season and out of season, even when it's not a, as, as popular in the academy or recognized, because it should still, um, epistemologically, we can still say that it should connect with people at some level. But sure, you, but you know, to remember Aristotle's point, you have to take people where you find them, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, you start with the, you start with the things that are accessible. You know, you know, you, you remember the old line where the, 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 the professor finds a student coming. I'd say a primate running up after class saying there is no truth, mm-hmm. and and the philosopher stock responds that well, what about that proposition? Is that one true? Right. Oh, we've got at least one. Don't. Right. And and uh, there are no truth. All truths are historically relative, except for this one, the one that propounds the relativism of historicity. <laughs> right. Right. If you have somebody say. Well, how would you like it if he did that to you? Mm-hmm. Well, if he grasps the point, he's grasping the notion of a principle, isn't he? Mm-hmm. He says, I don't care. Oh, well, that's case. there is no rightness or wrongness. You're simply asking for the rule of force, which case, uh, you don't like it? I don't like you. Well, we beat you up. Mm-hmm. Well, people can quickly be alerted to the fact that what they're speaking is gibberish. Mm-hmm. And they realize that they do want people to give them reasons when they're doing something that they don't like, uh, imposing laws on them, or doing mm-hmm. something, uh, they do, something in their nature does clamor for reasons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, just, it's just built into us, you know, we couldn't, yes. we, I, I tell people, you, you could, people could not get through the week without moving away from statements of merely like and dislikes to complaints about things, even complaints about the service at the dining hall. Oh, right. I think this uh, something something is something's got in our current the system of education that the college is going the last 
last 30 years have turned to work to sort of supplant natural understanding with theories mm -hmm. and plausible theories we, we somehow don't understand yeah. the difference cannot we can, profess not to know the difference between a male and females or the and 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 and, the, and with the judges reluctant to appeal beyond theories to an objective truth there's you know, remember the, the the congregation of the doctrine of faith years ago said there's not always been an italy or a hungary but as long as they're human beings there must be males and females that is how we are constituted. That is the telos of the very purpose of sexuality. And it takes a lot of indoctrination, a lot of, of very exotic theories, deep dish theories, in order to talk people out of that understanding. But you know, there are a couple of other things you mentioned in, in, in your own comments, Timo, that I wonder if we have time to explore for just a moment. We have to, yeah. How much time do we have here? As, as much as you want. Okay, let me just take a, a quick uh, one on you raise the matter of um, natural rights and civil rights. Mm -hmm. And of course, the example I always use, and I use the book was, let's imagine the case of the visitor coming in from London, he lands in, in, in New York. We don't think we have to look at his passport before we protect him from an, a lawless assault on the street. We don't mm -hmm. think that's his claim to that protection. Depends on his citizenship. But we understand he cannot take himself to the city college in New York and expect to be enrolled at that rate of tuition that they make available to citizens. Okay. Those are kinds of rights, as they say, arrive in certain enclaves, like the right to use the squash courts at Amherst College, or the right mm -hmm. to use the library, or the right to get access to this. What, what do we call the other? What is, we call that other kind of right where you, it doesn't depend on citizenship, what do you call a human right, maybe a natural right? Now, we shift, take the shift to the other side. There are more grounds going on in those on the other side. It's, it's yeah, we may you may want to preserve that right to higher education for people who are connected to the universities, and you may also want to reserve them for people who are committed to the American regime. You know, there's a question that for a while with resident aliens in New York, you may have access to this higher education if you're going to take up citizenship. Well, what difference does it make? Well, it could make a difference as to whether you want to be, train engineers for Hitler or Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. For people who are grown-ups, it may be useful to ask, you're of the age now, we ask you, do you know what it is to be a citizen? To affect, to say, this is the regime which I keep preserve my loyalty. I may have a natural right, we say, to be governed with a regime of consent, with, my, with a regime of elections. It doesn't mean that I have a right to vote in Italy as soon as I get there or mm -hmm. visit them here. What's the point? There's a moral concern here. There's, as you time it, we're no longer talking about natural rights. We haven't abandoned the principles of natural law when, we, when we're dealing with these civil rights. We say, well, voting, it means we're giving you a share of power over our lives. And we want to know, are you committed to the terms and principles on which we want to live? Are you committed to preserving for the people around you the same regime of elections. Remember, the people in Germany in the 30s who need to go to voting booth and vote out the rights of people in the adjacent voting booths. It's legitimate to ask people that. Now, you want to be a citizen. You want to be a vote. That's a distinctly moral question. So I just want to pick up on your point, Timon, that it, no, we don't abandon the field of natural law and moral reason when we simply shift. No, some other serious moral questions come into play in that domain as well. Mm -hmm. And the other point, you're, you're raising a marvelous point about 
God is directed to the to the end. Where, where's it, the whole thing directed? And I was mentioning my dear friend Dan Robinson, who's saying, "Well, um, there's a purpose. Even even to ask a question is to suggest a purpose. There's a pur- as a, there's a purpose in life." And he was raising the the interesting question of the warrants warrants for belief uh, in science as well as faith. They said, "You the man gets into the car and he he." He believes that the laws of physics are still in place. When he starts the car, those mech, and we, he believes. When we see the men, those people on the moon, we think, ah, you know, Newton was right. Those things really worked. And we can have, we have a certain faith that they're going to be there next week. Okay. And it's somehow, yeah, so where does the faith come into play? With how do I get to work? But maybe it comes into play on what the overall meaning of this, what, what is the end? You're raising these questions, Rory. What's the end to which this whole thing is directed? Remember, Aristotle in the Ethics says, "Well, this this this, this moral reasoning may not be of much use to the person for whom life consists of a series of disconnected emotional episodes." Mm-hmm. Cannot tell that what he's doing this week there's any connection to what he did last week. Remember, Dan mm-hmm. used to say, "Our aim is this. Our concern is whether people have reasons for their actions." Students have reasons for their actions and a principal ground for their motivations. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are the things you're doing this way connected with what you did this and what you can do thereafter? Then you ask, well, then what are you looking for? What, what are you looking forward to? Not getting to work. The question is, if you want to think that your life adds up to something, to what is it being directed? What, what's the principle that you think you're putting in place as you mark and go off the path of your own biography here? Mm-hmm. And if you have confidence, what leads you to want to lead this moral life, a life of goodness or uprightness, not to injure somebody, to deal with justification. Um, is it just, it's good in itself. You, you want to be the kind of man you are when you do those kinds of things. Do you have certain faith in what the world will be like if others keep acting in that way? And you wonder, where do we get this capacity to do this in this way? What did it come from the like the how do we get these creatures of reason? Mm-hmm. Uh, who is the creator that gave us these creatures mm-hmm. of reason? Where does the whole thing point? And once you put the thing in place, you wonder, does it not point to the uh, the creator of the whole? And is there not a design here that we're tra- simply trying to understand? That, you know, the, 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 uh, the natural world unfolds itself to us, and the religious have been taught now that we know we get to be it's it's not no inconsistency between truth and and our religious faith that we're open to what what science reveals and we think it unfolds what's been you know implied in the whole mm-hmm. construction and the things we're yet to discover mm-hmm. yeah i think well there's uh, you had two separate uh you know topics there but going back to the um the relationship between natural and, and civil rights i think you know one one thing that is hampered um, even many conservative jurists or lawyers or, or uh, uh, legal scholars that have, have been in the, you know, the originalism conversation is, um, uh, and many of them will, um, you know, who, who would we say, uh, or, or how would we say, they, they may skew more libertarian in their political sensibilities, and they um, there will often be set up a sort of um, antagonism between um, you know the the man and the individual and his rights, and then the society and their rights, and how these two. And, and then it's difficult to see 
which one takes priority and how this is supposed to work as if they're as if they're kind of incongruent and society is just a um you know a, a necessary evil and, and they will treat government much the same way as if it doesn't and so my you know a lot of my point and i've, I've done this elsewhere is to say no these things of course done well society life together beginning with family and then you know with Aristotle going to extended families and then the city and then so on. And as well as government and lawmaking, these all flow out of the the true human anthropology and they're good. So therefore your, your moral rights um, in some ways are, you know, there's some way that they have perfect harmony with these, with these things. And there it's not an imposition upon the individual's, um, you know, moral existent or reasonability to have these things limited according to the needs also of, of the community that he's naturally driven to through his sociability. So I was trying to get at some of that. There's really a larger point. That's not really, a you know, making a, making a broader comment, even apart from, from your book towards people that um, seem to conservatives struggle with that. Even though if you read Aquinas and, and Aristotle and, um, you know, everyone else, Pufendorf and enthusiasts, it's all there. You know, they're, they're, they're and I list some others, James Wilson too. They're, they all know how to wrestle with this and say, yes, um, it's going to appear, but there's no other way to live. You must live in society with people and you, you must have good laws and, and order, you know, um, in a, in Aquinas's De Regno, you know, even talks about government before there's even, even um, before he's even talking about sin or crime. He's talking about how men would just need to order their activities with each other because we're reasonable and all of us could come up with really good ideas that wouldn't be bad to pursue, but we can't do it on our own uh, because we don't all have all the capabilities to pursue them. And so you, someone has to come in and say, here's the ordinance of reason for the common good. And it's not even about you know uh, stopping crime yet. It's just about saying, let's let's drive on the left side of the road. You know, It's that kind of stuff. So I think those... Um, Right. It's, it, it goes along with this um, th this entire tradition, you know, that you're you're, you're working to recover for people. Um, and it just get, it just makes um, you know things more sensible and easier to to grapple with, rather than these uh, this constant sort of tug and uh, competition between interests. But rather saying, here's the vision of of the good for man. It includes the you know the good uh, with others, and this is all according to. Um, the law that's implanted in the in the way we've been made, which of course science can tell us much about, but we know it's the more important thing is to know, you know, the source of that um, anthropology and and what it reflects and what it ultimately leads us to. So I'm sort of reiterating or summarizing much of what you were saying, but that um, probably you know, that was you, you, you had, you had just, that was a rich commentary leading in three or four very good very good directions. Mm. Uh, you know, when we talk about the common good, we mm. realize be merely material because we don't we, we don't all can all be affected materially by any any good policy mm. we say let, let's say we have we work on rules that people have the right to have uh, to see the evidence of witnesses against them before they're convicted of something we work on these rules which i think are in principle right now sometimes we know there'll be corruptions uh juries are corrupted judges are corrupted and yet, even though that we still think that anything that calls itself the rule of law must have the possibility of the accused confronting the, so we say there's something just implicit right about we write about that, mm -hmm. and we say about everything else how we how we want to see, be dealt with in this life, with people who give justifications for what they're doing to us and the laws they're imposing. We say, well, to the extent we're doing, we can live that life mm -hmm. on those kinds of principles. Those principles are just. In, they're in principle good. 
And a life arranged for that is a life that will be good for all, for most people around us. You know, but at the same time, you point out that in, back in the 70s with Cohen versus California, the court did a flip. And it used to be thought that people who venture into, into the public's streets could have a sense that people out there would feel the obligation to restrain themselves out of respect for the sensibility of people entering a public place. Mm-hmm. And the court does shift and say, no, no, somebody's acting out, being vile. Uh, no, he has a bare, he's rights of speech. And if you find that offensive, it's hurtful, you turn away, develop typhus skin, or avoid public places altogether. So we've had this odd thing with the urbanists trying to contrive schemes of collective transport, not private transport, arranging places where strangers can encounter one another in public, and the courts just removing, altering the moral framework that made those kinds of engagements and encounters sustainable and possible, acceptable for people. You know, um, my wife, my late wife used to go to a battery of hawkers when she landed at the airport saying mean things about her. And and the third thing, well, this, it, the cops used to be able to clear people out of, out, out of that all the way. But you raise another interesting point, going back I mean, to another of your anchoring points, though, uh, Timo. You recall uh, a story I've used before of, of a student, a, a gal, a student of mine in Political obligations are first things. Nineteen years old, and at the, at, at the end of the paper on um, on abortion, she said she's gone through the reason now, and she realizes, no, I don't think abortion is justified for the reasons these facile reasons people give. I don't think it's no, it's not justified to take another life for the sake of your convenience. And so then he says that she says something I've seen before, but I have to admit that if I found myself pregnant, the interest pressing on me. Probably more powerful than the force of this reasoning that I've just reviewed. But then, Tima, she took a turn that I'd never seen. She said, but isn't that why we have laws on this subject? Hmm. Because the laws may contain, contain a wisdom that may help give guidance for a 19-year-old. That's why the line I used to use, the, the court stripped away the, what's that line from Thomas More? The law, the the country's mm. thick with laws. You think any of us would be able to stand upright on the hot winds that would blow them if you cut them down? <laughs> so these people cut down the laws on abortion. And here's this 90-year-old gal who's standing there outside without the protection of those laws that mm. used to offer both shelter and guidance in the past. And you say, you know, we've had the advantage of these things, but there's a reason behind them. And mm-hmm. of course, at some point, the fact this tradition is not enough. We'll always run into Justice Holmes saying, you've got to say more for a tradition than to say, a law than to say, it's been around here since Henry the right. And right. certainly there's no longer tradition in this country but slavery. So at a certain yeah. point, you invoke tradition. But the question, finally, you and I will say, is what going to put to us in the yeah. end? Is that tradition sustaining something that has been true? Mm-hmm. And we, we respect it now for the same reasons that we respected it at the beginning. Which is saying always, questions to say, we may not make tradition take the place of moral judgment, but it's, it's aspects again to say. Although, so the, the way the court used history in, in, in the, uh, uh, the Dobbs case, simply say, well, there's no record of a long record of a law's creating a right to abortion. Well, the senders, no record of it does not say there may not be a tenable right to it now. 
Mm-hmm. That's different from saying, you know, those laws that were passed in the 19th century, they're based on an understanding of embryology woven with moral reasoning. And we respect them now. We think there is valid now for the same reason that they were valid then, that there's an mm-hmm. enduring truth that they're conveying. So I guess the thing we want to put out is, yes, tradition is awful guide. Yeah, the reason why marriage was was the, was really confined to male and female, even though as people started fumbling and trying to get their reasons to justify, there was reasons for it. And mm-hmm. the test for us, again, in, in, as ever, when people people challenge it, mm-hmm. is to say, can we recover? Can we recover the moral reasoning and the justification that stands behind that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's and that's that's a great example you used of that um, that paper that 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 the uh, lady wrote. That's it's you know put exactly right. I think her conclusion at the end of the effect of law and its purpose for. Um, People, there's. I'm a big fan of, of, I've used this line a lot of Richard Baxter, and he has this line in the Holy Commonwealth where he's talking about, um, you know, why, why good magistrates should enforce virtue, morality, and promote true religion. And he says, well, because most people um, are really weak and susceptible to basically what we would call bullying. And what they need to be reminded of is their, their, um, their instincts and their, their sentiments, we might say to be good Christians is a good thing. And they need the support of law to remind them to sort of hold ah, fast. Law right? is, a, a moral, is a moral teacher. Yes, exactly. So, and, and even if, you know, it's um, because, because we're all prone to, to drift and we're susceptible to these other interests, like you're the one that now has, you know, to carry a baby to term that you, you know, you weren't planning for. That's a huge uh, amount of pressure, but the law reminds you, um, no, it's it's that's not only not right, and we're not going to let you do it, and it's for good reason, you know. And here, here, the, here it is. So I think people, are, you know, thinking about law in that way again as formative and a, and as a teacher um, should be helpful because then, um, or at least it's helpful for me because then if someone's teaching you something, you pay attention and you look into the reasons behind what they're saying. If it's just positivism and rule to power and pure formulaic um, social engineering, then you don't worry about the reasons because all you have to know is who's doing it. That's all that matters and what their, their interests are. But if there's a, if it's actually a teacher and it's trying to convey something more than just the rule on the page, then you, then you pay attention. And I think that's why it's so helpful for people to, to alter their paradigm in this way and the way they approach law, because I don't think most people do anymore. And so that's so apt. You have the example that I, that I keep drawn to is that um, uh, you take a look before the Civil Rights Act, let's say 64, 1963, about hmm. barring racial discrimination in private businesses open to transactions to the public. About 75% of people in the North were in favor of that. 75% of the people in the South were opposed to it. They didn't want to see that 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 met that policy enforced. They wanted to come down on the side of privacy. So the, the, the Congress Act of 1974, and three years later, there's the, the, the majorities in support of the country are parallel, north and south, supporting the law. Mm-hmm. Now, what happened? What happened was that the the law by acting with the law, they they took that racial discrimination. They were going to remove it from the domain of private choice and private feeling and treat it as a moral wrong, as a matter of public obligation. 
when there was with the sting of enforcement, you know, the sting was a sign that, you know, we take this seriously. It's no longer mm-hmm. a lot of likes and likes and feelings. So that is it. Well, what happened? Had the culture of these two places itself changed dramatically, but they'd have something with the fact, as you suggest, Timo, that the law was teaching some different moral lessons at the top of the state. Mm-hmm. And this case, that, that, that has been neglected. People mm-hmm. lose sight of that. But it's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it's just inescapable that the law will be mm-hmm. a moral teacher, which is why, of course, we're affected by the fact that when the Supreme Court struck down uh, abortion in, in overturned Roe versus Wade, it all said was abortion is not in the text of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. The culture but the culture was radically changed. Abortion had, had changed from being something abhorred, discouraged, forbidden into something approved, mm-hmm. encouraged, celebrated, promoted, and all, and the court strikes it down. But it says nothing about the rightness or wrongness of abortion. It does not even pronounce on the human standing the child in the womb. So it sends the issue back into mm-hmm. a politics where the culture has been tilted so strongly against us, and this is a place where. The court needed to engage in the kind of moral teaching yep. that it was at work with 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 uh, with race over the past fifty years. Mm. No, that's that's right. I mean, I know um, you know there, you, we can have uh, debates about the process of you know getting rid of rid of abortion, so on and so forth. But you, it seems to me that the um, you know the states aren't trending exactly well at this point. I mean, we just had Ohio. With an unfavorable result, um, you know they're going to to enshrine abortion in their constitution, right? So it's so it's, it's sort of kicking the can. The answer that well, it's not in the constitution, so we don't you know necessarily have to deal with it, is just insufficient. And I and I just wonder what you know older jurists would think of that. Not not only what they would have done, but what they would think of it. You know, if I'm not mistaken, um, Alito did cite Matthew Hale in the in the uh, the opinion. Which was just funny to me, and maybe you know it's some kind of esoteric reading we should have of the opinion because of that. But you know Matthew Hale's on the law of nature, you know, which surely Alito is familiar with. I just thought he would never, you know, stand for this. Neither would Blackstone. This is just unacceptable to do, you know, insofar as the history and tradition and text and tradition method goes, which has uses. It's a it's a master class in that that approach that uh, the Dobbs opinion. But I just thought, you know, what. Um, all the people you're citing, um, the the precedent and, and these things, they would never have, have stood for this, you know, for a second because they would have immediately said this is nonsensical. It doesn't make sense ontologically, tell you whatever you want to say um, to to even tell the states they have a they have a choice on this. This is something that could be debated uh, politically. So, you know, it was it was a bit. Uh, scandalizing in that in that sense, even though I would, say, I would say with Justice Kavanaugh that the Constitution is is yeah. neutral mm-hmm. on the question of, yes. of killing killing innocent babies. Yes. Uh, no, the, the, if you understand the deep principles of the Constitution, you understand it's based upon an understanding of the human person. Mm-hmm. Understand mm-hmm. the human person about the gravity of taking human life and the need for justifications and so on. No, it's it, it's. You, he's talked. He's talked himself into a positivism and a theory of jurisprudence mm-hmm. to try to keep these 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 questions. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. you no. Know, remember the old. I was raising the question before. Remember the old Buck versus Bell on compulsory sterilization, and and mm-hmm. everyone agrees that was wrongly done. It's where homes, mm-hmm. three generations of imbeciles are enough. Yeah. The curious thing is that the 
the academic com- commentator were all in favor of him. That's a good, mm. good theory of jurisprudence there. He said, yeah. well, how would our current judges deal with it? Because you, you, we, we won't find in the tradition of our law some long-established right not to be exposed to compulsory sterilization mm-hmm. or to eugenic experiments. At a certain point, you're going to have to take the matter in its own terms. Mm-hmm. And say, this is a human being. What are the grounds on which you are ordering up these kinds of surgeries for people? What are the premises engaged in? What's the ground of the, the scientific ground on which you claim mm-hmm. to do these things? But, but once again, you, you have to detach yourself of this positivist scheme. Uh, that right, the, 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 John Marshall and, uh, and his, his colleagues would have, uh, would have, would have, would have been, been astonished by this, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fact, even, you know, some of the, um, slightly adjacent, but it's, it's similar, the, you know, some of the arguments against, um, you know, the, the Bill of Rights were, it would be embarrassing as a country to have to write this down because then everyone would think we're stupid, right? That we don't know this, that everyone here doesn't just know it and we have to tell everybody. <laughs> so, you, Oh, you picked that up from beyond the Constitution. That's right. That's right. Oh, that is Great so line. sweet. That is so sweet. <laughs> of, 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 of James, they did, Wilson, uh, James Wilson and Alvarez did not even want to mention ex post facto law. People yeah. will embarrass us from the people who think that's, we, we, everyone knows that. Mm-hmm. If the, um, and as, you know, the point I made in, in the book that you start with those anchoring premises. Mm-hmm. You get to the point that, yeah, anyone accused of a crime should have access to the witness and evidence mm-hmm. against them for the sake of rebutting them and rebutting them, getting a verdict that is substantively accurate, discriminate with the innocence and guilt before we put punishment on people. So wait a minute. But that's that, the sixth amendment, that right to confront witnesses, that's simply embedded then in the very logic of law. Mm-hmm. It'll be there if, and of course we realize the founders never, never thought it was important to put that in the text. It was an afterthought, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. An afterthought. Mm-hmm. This is they never thought of putting in innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. Would you say, as as Jonathan Kinnear said, the founders did not put in the context everything they knew. Yeah, and they thought, well, yeah, uh, it, some of this would be discovered later, in the way that I, the example is. My, my friend George Sullivan, great judge, Justice Sullivan, <coughs> when he confronted the Scottsboro case of that, the case of those black kids in the 1930s who hopped on a freight train, they got involved, mixed up with some white girls on the train. Hmm. There was an accusation of rape. There was an awful trial held in Alabama, <coughs> a hostile setting. Poor kids didn't know how to arrange lawyers for themselves. <coughs> and Justice Sullivan looked at this and said, look, Look at the circumvent. These ignorant kids, these illiterate kids, mm. these disconnected from any friends or family, not knowing how to proceed. And the, and the authorities seem to have the most casual attitude. We mm. added trying to arrange counsel for them. And he said, whatever this is, it just doesn't add up to the rudiments of what we recognize as a, as mm. a trial. Now, the interesting thing about it is that uh, <laughs> he didn't take this occasion to incorporate the Sixth Amendment against the states. Mm-hmm. What Southern was saying is, this would be wrong even if there were no Sixth Amendment. Right, right. And that's, that's what it's, it's, so we're pointing out, don't you see, the logic is already embedded there. 
mm-hmm. is that the principles that the founders drew upon as they made the Constitution, they didn't think they were able to draw everything out at once, or it was even necessary to draw out all the implications mm-hmm. at once. But so right. it makes a profound difference if we understand that there really is an anchoring truth behind these things in mm-hmm. the text. Right. It's just in the in the nature of the nature of the thing. It's the it's the uh, the metaphysics, right? The metaphysics of the person and then of law itself. Whatever law is doesn't you know it has a certain um, logic that 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 people who um, who study it study it rightly should be should readily know you know and, and all of as we know all the uh, you know most of the founding founding generation they're all law nerds you know they all even if they're not lawyers themselves they're all reading Blackstone and and these sorts of things so they they kind of get this and, and another thing you point out that's that's um you know depressing for us and it gets us maybe full circle to what we started talking about with with the new book is you have another line close to the material we were just talking about and beyond the constitution where you say um another fear that is uh, and I, I can't remember if you say it has become true but i think we'd agree it has is that if you wrote if, if you wrote down a finite list of rights then people would lose the ability to to expand their scope and both to the background of those or to those that are uh, on the periphery. And um, so then you start quibbling and, and squabbling over this finite list. But inevitably, to make this work, you're going to start to have to make things up like the penumbras or whatever you want to say. Something's got to fill the gap, but you're not going to do it in the way that people used to because you, you're beginning at a um, sort of artificial starting point rather than what their starting point would have stood behind you know those those rights that are that are articulated so i i think that is uh has absolutely become true and it's a lot of why um your new book may be foreign to people when when most of it should not be it should be you know readily accepted by or, or in, a, in a perfect in a better world we might both like to live in uh, it may not have been published because everyone would have said, yeah, we know all that, you know. Again, you're pointing to that chapter beyond the Constitution about the original argument because God, God bless you. You, you, really, you really like that book. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but the, the, the concern here is that if we put some of them down and neglect others, the assumption will be that the rights we mentioned will be far more important, those things mm-hmm. we never thought to mention, like the right of parents to have some some control over the, the the education and control of the, the custody of their own children, whether people should be free of, of, of wage price control. Oh, there's nothing in the Constitution about it. That can't be. It must right. be what the laws of the state to do it. So in other words, the, the concern, as, as you point out, it's the, the old concern was that the people reserved about putting the list down. It was not, not, not to reserve about rights, that they were, misinstructing the American people about the grounds of their rights. So the guy says, mm-hmm. I have these rights for the First Amendment. You, so, and people, Theodore Cedric would argue, that you think in a free society, you wouldn't have a presumptive right to speak to mm-hmm. social others? Do you think you have that right only because it's in that text of the First Amendment? So what the, the point was, you, you'll get the story. What we lost is the capacity to deliberate about the things that are truly rightful and deserve mm-hmm. to be protected. No, there's nothing in there about not being exposed to uh, eugenic experimentation. We have to reason about the matter uh, when it comes to part of, I think Dan Robinson's old line was years ago. He said, well, here's a list. Uh, uh, Theodore Cedric said, well, why don't, you stop? why don't you specify my right to get up in the morning, my right to walk down the street? <laughs> and, and, and Dan Robinson said, 
This is for the people who think that the system of positive integers was discovered one at a time. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's eight. Holy right. moly, there's nine. And is that we, we, we don't know what's connecting all these things. We just discovered mm -hmm. them. In the and mm -hmm. usually we don't, mm -hmm. we, we don't know what the rationale is behind on these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, this uh, I'm sure we could go on and on. Um, and this has been an absolute delight to talk about. It's, it's, well, it's, we've gotten far afield, but, but especially about your new book. Um, it's, it's been a delight. It's been a delight for me, too. I've got to hear more about the story of your life. <laughs> we'll have to do it. Say that's much less interesting to people. No, you 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 on wonderful sources when you when you're doing something for us at Anchoring Truths, and I hope you'll do more. Well, thank you, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Always appreciate the opportunity to do that, and uh, and loved the loved the book. It was it was great to engage with, very very thought provoking, and and helped me pull many many things together, um, and, and as well as you know some of your other work I've already mentioned. Um, and everyone should know if they haven't picked up already, you know, the, the source of first things, the name um, is your your first book you know, or not first book, but that that original book that now uh, the magazine bears the bears the name. Father Newhouse borrowed the title. And yes. A bishop was it was, in, was introduced to me at a conference of bishops years ago. And he, he mentioned that Father Newhouse took the title hmm. of my book. And I said. Yes, I told Richard that my next book is going to be called Urology and What It Can Do for You. <laughs> and I want to see what kind of a journal he's going to make out of it. <laughs> That's very good. Okay. Um, well, again, this this has been great. I'd, I'd love to talk again um, soon love, about I, these I things and much other. Where are where are you? Where are, where are where are you now? Where are you based now? I live in in South Florida now in Naples. Oh my God! We should all be there. Yes, <laughs> it's it's nice. It's very temperate now. It was very hot for for a while. Oh, but. Sarasota! I might get to Sarasota. Mm, yes, oh, Sarasota is beautiful too. Yeah, a red part of a red state. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it's very free down here. We're in a very free state. Um, okay. So I'm based down here, and I do I do this work with with Jeff. Um, you know, so I go up to to he's, Idaho. He's quite wonderful. Oh, he's great. He's great. I always say him. Um, it's a toss up for me between Jeff and Matt Frank on who knows more constitutional law case law. They just have it, you know, locked, locked down. Matt Frank, Matt Frank is certainly not with us on natural law. <laughs> no, he's not. Oh, and I said, no, substantive due process are us. That's what we do. <laughs> he's not. I've actually mean, been meaning to talk to him as, as well at some point, but, um, Yes, he, we have we have stark disagreements there. It will be a more more pointed conversation. <laughs> uh, but Get to, come to DC. Let us let us take you to dinner and lunch. I, I would love that. Or, or, or do, do we'll do some some podcast with you when you get there or something. I, I would love that. I'll certainly let you know when, next time I'm in DC, which is right. fairly often, okay. every now and then. But this was great. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a great time. Thank you. <laughs>